Section 14. Personal Recollections of Early Melbourne and Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. Personal Recollections of Early Melbourne and Victoria by William Westgarth. Section 14. Black Thursday. Whirlwinds of Tempestuous Fire. Milton. The year 1851 had for us three memorable events. First, Black Thursday, on 6th February. Second, the elevation of Port Phillip District into the colony of Victoria, on 1st July. Third, the discovery of gold, which was practically and substantially that of Ballarat, during the third week of September. Black Thursday has been so much written about by others that I had best confine myself to my own experiences. I rode into business, as usual, from the Merry Creek residence, four and a half miles north of the city. The weather had been unusually dry for some days with the hot wind from the northwest, or the direction of what we called Sturt's Desert, where hot winds in summer, and almost as distinctly cold winds in midwinter, were manufactured for us. The heat had been increasing daily, and this, as we comforted ourselves, was surely the climax which was to bring the inevitable reversion of the southerly blast and the restoring rain, for it was felt as the hottest day in my recollection. In town we did not hear of much that day, although reports came from time to time of sinister-looking signs from the surrounding interior, whence an unusual haze or thick mist seemed to rise towards the cloudless sky. Some few, however, who were more active than others in their trading or gossiping movements, became aware in the afternoon, or perhaps were favoured with the news as a secret that Dr. Thompson had ridden post-haste from Geelong to Allison and Knight, our early and leading millers and flower factors to warn them that the whole country was in flames, with incalculable destruction of cereals and other products, whereupon the said firm at once raised the price of flour thirty per cent. The doctor had certainly earned a good fee on that occasion, and we must hope that he got it. I returned home as usual after the day's work, nothing to alarm us had even made a near approach to Melbourne, as our trees were too park-like in their wide scatter, and our grass too much cropped off by hungry quadrupeds, to expose us to any danger. But feeling unusual oppression from the singularly close heat, for I was attired in woollen clothing, not greatly under the winter woollen standard, and which, by the way, serves to confirm that our dry Australian clime is not to be measured in effect, 
like most others, by mere height of the thermometer, I proceeded to indulge myself for the first time in my life, I think, with the second refresher of my shower bath. Next morning accounts began to pour in from all quarters of an awful havoc, in which, sad to say, life to no small extent was lost, as well as very much property. There has never been throughout Australia, either before or since, such a day as Victoria's Black Thursday, and most likely, or rather most certainly, it will never, to its frightful extent, occur again. For every year, with the spread of occupation, brings its step in the accumulation of protectives. Still, these fires are a terrible and frequent evil, and even if the towns and settlements are safe, the destruction of the grand old forests is deplorable, and ere very many years will be, indeed, most sadly deplored. What between the unchecked clearances of the fires and the unchecked clearances on the part of the colonists, I fear that those noble gum trees, the greatest and loftiest trees probably in the world, so graphically described by Mr. Froud in his recent Australian tour, will have but a poor chance. He describes also, with equal life, those dangerous forest fires, which are so especially frequent during the ever-recurring ordeals of drought, of which he had a fair sample at the time of his visit. Only think of eight miles of forest burnt in one fire which he witnessed, and such fires frequent occurrences. Let us in time take warning by the example of the States and Canada, where, in and around more settled parts, the magnificent primeval forest has entirely disappeared, alike from areas still unused as from those brought into use. When I travelled by rail from Montreal to Toronto during the British Association session at the former in 1884, a very large part of the way was through the monotonous and utterly wearisome scene of a second growth of miscellaneous small trees and underwood that had succeeded to the grand original. We were told of one small town which had become famous by its good taste or good fortune in having preserved in its midst one of the ancient monarchs. Well, what could be done to preserve Australian forests? We must not deprive the people of the use of these forests, for there they are for the purpose, as part of the country's wealth, and in quantity enough for all, discreetly dealt with. I would parcel out the forests into great clumps, marking off adequate passages between them, and only permitting for the present the latter to be dealt with. With the gradual clearing of these intervals, the reserved portions and the colony generally might be freed, in great measure, from the risk of fires. Early Victoria, from 1851 Gold, 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 bright and yellow, hard and cold, hood, 
I am drawing near the end of what may be fairly considered as early Melbourne and Victoria. Indeed, I might be challenged in going beyond the memorable 1851, a year which ushers such momentous new features into the colony, but considerably more than a generation has since passed, and, writing as I do for those who occupy today the old scene, I may plead as my excuse their own view of the subject, for already they regard the time I have come to as the real beginning of early Victoria, while the dim distances preceding are, to them, a kind of age before the deluge, which ordinary memories fail to fathom. In keeping the personal recollections I cannot, at the worst, be very protracted, for I quitted public life in 1853, and regretfully, under the calls of business, the colony itself four years later. I must confine myself to some few recollections of the former brief but busy period, 1851 to 3, of which, in its multifarious rush of political and general business, I might say in the well-known words of the Roman poet, which have survived my classic rust, Corum pars magna few, provided I were allowed to greatly abate, or rather perhaps, in becoming modesty, altogether to delete the third factor of Virgil's sentence. The goldfields came upon us with almost the suddenness of the changes of dreamland, we had had a slight graduation by the news, in the May preceding, from the sister colony, of a shepherd on Dr. Kerr's station, near Bathurst, having come upon a round hundred weight of nearly pure gold. This luck, I presume, was mainly the result of the habit most of us had begun to acquire of keeping our eyes upon the ground beneath us. In consequence of Hargraves, on his return from California about this time, having predicted gold and subsequently fulfilled his prophecy by washing out some of the precious metal in the Bathurst vicinities, passing over trifling intermediate finds of gold, as at Anderson's Creek in August, Ballarat came suddenly upon us. The news reached town. I think, on 21st September. A week later, a small knot of us merchants, who had offices on the east side of the market square, including our next-door neighbours, Messrs. Watson and White, were discussing what was to come of it all. For while part of our employees were off to visit the diggings on leave, the rest threatened to follow, leave or no leave. The situation had a certain convenience in the fact that almost all business was for the time at an end, excepting that of buying up spades and shovels, pitchers and pannikins, and anything to answer for a cradle. Instead of rising with the gold, houses and lands in Melbourne actually fell, and considerably too, in the first confusion when multitudes were selling off or letting at anything they could get, 
in order to be off to the diggings. There came, however, a rapid recovery a few months after, my friend Mr. Henry Miller, sitting next me in the legislature, told me one day that two owners of cottages, to whom he had lent eighty pounds each, upon their respective security, had begged him six months ago to take over the said property in payment, and let them be off at once to the common goal of the day, that he had charitably done so, and that he had just resold these homes for one thousand pounds each. When the tide began its upward turn, a Mr. O'Farrell, a quiet, unpretending house agent and rent collector, one of whose sons afterwards came to so bad an end, made promptly a large fortune by buying up leases or fee simples, and in an incredible short time redisposing of them at a great advance. Early Ballarat All that glisters is not gold. Merchant of Venice Let me begin upon early Ballarat by stating what many may now have forgotten, namely that the original and native name was Ballarat, or Ballarat, which was the pronunciation then, and for some years after. But our English way is to be put the emphasis on the first part of a polysyllabic word. I have long remarked this practice comparing it with that of races of inferior, or more or less barbarous condition, who, as in countless other examples in Australia, and still more strikingly in New Zealand, and generally, I think, over the world, lay the emphasis on or towards the end of the word. What does it mean? I arrived at my solution. The emphatic ending best preserves the whole word. The barbarous, with few ideas, giving surpassing importance to words, while the civilized, under the crowd of ideas, disregard words except as mere vehicles, and traverse them easiest by the early emphasis, to say nothing of dropping the after-part entirely when troublesomely long. The Turanian, or lowest class of language, as Professor Max Muller tells us, preserves its root words forever, tacking one to another, but never losing the full sound of each, while all sorts of word, gerrymandering, liberties go on in the highest class. I ventured to profound my theory to my linguistic friend, Mr. Hyde Clark, but he found so many divergencies in Latin and Greek and Hebrew and what not, that I was driven to a partial reconstruction. It was the busy as well as civilized race that scamped the words. The Greeks and Romans, that portion of them that made society or the public opinion, and that consequently governed the language, aboard the vulgar hurry of business life, and thus gave their words a better chance of unmutilated life. I have not yet been driven out of this final theory. 
With hardly anything else to do, it was as hardly possible to resist a visit, with nearly everybody else, to Ballarat. So I appeared there on the 3rd October, and, as senior member for Melbourne in the colony's first parliament, the first president of the recently established Chamber of Commerce, I was, of course, a man in authority. So mounting a gum-tree stump as the only available chair or pulpit, I harangued the diggers, first upon the grand fortunes that had overtaken the colony, and next upon their sadly wasteful ways with the little stream that ran through the Ballarat Valley. I fear I did not much impress my hearers on the latter point, for every one did what was most for his immediate needs, whether or not he thus sacrificed his neighbour below him. Next I was conducted to Gold Point, which was just developing its quality in the blue clay, which had been struck at no great depth below the surface. I was let down into a big hole, the early parent of sharp sinking, given a spade, and directed to apply it to a place where a digger's quick eye had detected one speck of gold. There was probably, he said, a string of gold behind it, and so it proved, for out of about a pound weight of matrix, which I removed on the corner of the spade, I picked out seven shillings and sixpence worth of gold. Then I retired from the crowd and the incessant noise of cradles, and ascending from the valley to the high level plain, I came upon a small lake, whose waters glittered peacefully in the warm sunshine of a bright spring day. A tiny streamlet was still running from the lake, and trickling down the small semi-precipice towards the main rivulet, now sadly muddy, which I had just left. So near was this edge to the lake that I increased the stream by deepening its bed with my foot, but I repented of this waste and restored the block, because the approaching summer must be thought for, and this natural reservoir was by no means deep. I waded into pleasantly and invitingly cool water, but had promptly to retreat from swarms of leeches which attacked my feet. The scene was striking. Although the hum of busy humanity arose from beneath, not an object was visible on the higher level, as I glanced around to the far west and north, excepting the country's indigenous features. There was not a human being, not even a sheep, in sight. Around this spot has since arisen the city of Ballarat, with 50,000 people, with streets, buildings, institutions, business, including an extra busy stock exchange, equal to those of, at least, twice its population at home while the lovely lake at that time has long been fringed with residences and gardens, and its waters been the scene of the regattas and other diversions of the leisure of the prosperous citizens. As I rode back on my horse to town, for Culp and Co. had not yet established their leather-hung 
stage drags, for which, in the impossibility of others upon the unmade roads, we had reason to be thankful, I mused over all I had seen, and long ere reaching home had concluded that ten thousand pounds a day was being taken out of Ballarat. Sundays accepted, that meant a product at the rate of over three millions a year, in which, as one of its export items, the young colony was already precipitated from a total export product of only a trifle above a million the year before. No one was prepared to credit such a statement. Indeed, unbelief on the point was prevalent until well on into 1852, when Bendigo had been added to Ballarat, and when Melbourne was seen to be full of gold, which the newly instituted gold broker was already practised, with critical eye as to quality, in weighing out by the hundred or the thousand ounces, and which diggers by hundreds were carrying away in their pockets, in most cases entirely unrecorded, to Tasmania, Sydney, and Adelaide. There was hardly any customs record at the first, and only a very partial one for a while after, until the diggers ceased thus to carry off the gold, upon finding that the rival brokers gave them fair and full value. The yield of 1852 was estimated at no less than 15 millions. How the diggers, utterly inexperienced, as they mostly then were, came so suddenly upon such surpassingly rich drifts has never been, to my mind at least, satisfactorily explained, unless the case be summarily affiliated to those possibilities of throwing sixes in dozen successions, and such like. In no one year since 1852 have the Victorian goldfields, although comparatively the most productive, yielded even a near approach to 15 millions. Mount Alexander and Bendigo Our fortune lies upon this jump. Antony and Cleopatra. The following year, about the same pleasant spring season, I made out a second goldfields visit, in company with my late friend, Mr. W. M. Bell, senior partner of the early firm of Bells and Buchanan. This time I went further inland, and in the more northerly direction of Mount Alexander and Bendigo as considerable regions around were then loosely called, and which are now represented respectively by the large municipalities of Castlemaine and Sandhurst. Vast changes had taken place in the colony since my Ballarat visit. There had been, in the first place, arrivals in multitudes, first from the surrounding colonies, and then from home, and, in a lesser influx from the Cape, America, and parts of Europe. The tide of such threatening dimensions from China was later on. The roads, such as they were, were crowded with passengers, and with traffic, chiefly in flour, to the starving diggers, 
the carriage of which to Bendigo ran up to one hundred pounds a ton. Indeed, such was the cost of carriage that some of us estimated that a single year's total would equal the cost of making a railway. Of course, the railway, draining the labour market, could only itself have been a proportionate cost. Nevertheless, Mr. Trenchard, a Melbourne solicitor, projected the Melbourne, Mount Alexander and Murray River Railway, an enterprise which, after some months' flutter of chequered life, expired for want of support from the over-busy colonists, who had other far more immediately pressing needs and chances for their money. The gold escort had been established by this time, with an armed guard, which at times included native police, a force which had been the best, if not the only, success as yet in our civilizing efforts with the Aborigines. The art of digging had greatly advanced since my Ballarat visit. At Bendigo I inspected the White Hills, where there was already regular shaft sinking to depths approaching a hundred feet. The White Hills were so called from a large ejection, piled up in white mounds of a light-coloured thick bed of the auriferous drifts, in which unprecedented quantities of gold had been found. Descending one of the shafts, I was shown the chief source of this gold, namely a thin seam of small quartz grit, hardly two inches in thickness, and of the white quartz hue, excepting the lowest half-inch which was brown with iron. This lowest half-inch had almost all the gold, and the very lowest part of it, where the iron-brown darkened almost to black, was literally crowded with gold particles. The diggers now always looked for the most gold where the quartz drift showed most of iron browning. Mr. Selwyn had not yet explained to us our Australian gold features and those gold constants of Murchison, which had to sustain so severe a shaking in Australia. I scraped out gold grains with my nails, and a good many with a knife within a minute. When I told the claim owners that here was unlimited gold, and asked what they intended to do with it all, they pointed to the superincumbent mass of white stuff, which was either absolutely sterile, or, what was practically the same, had insufficient gold to pay even a run through the wash when ejected. The case seemed not unlike that of the thin seams of flint nodules, say nuggets, which characterise the thick chalk strata of South England, within which most, or, all the siliceous matter of the entire bed has been somehow brought together. I understood that this remarkable gold seam gave out not long after, and that, thereupon, the marvellous yield of Bendigo was seriously diminished. As we approach this already great and busy gold field, when the hum of its business life was just breaking upon our ears, but without any other disturbing intrusion to interfere 
with the universally indigenous scene, a large kangaroo, the old man, or larger species, started up amongst the gum-tree underwood a little ahead of us, and bounded away in magnificent style. But a day or two afterwards, as we were leaving Bendigo, another feature of the colony, not indigenous and by no means so pleasant, was brought up to our minds to their considerable discomfort for the moment. We were just clear of goldfield sounds and company, and involved in the utter solitude of the primeval bush, when we espied a party approaching us on the road. They numbered five, all on horseback. Somehow, the circumstances considered, we had all, independently concluded that there was no small chance of there being bushrangers, for already the towns and goldfields, the latter, of course, mostly swarmed with these unmitigated ruffians, arrived chiefly from Tasmania. We discussed the chances, three, four, possibly even five to one in our favour, and considered what we should do in case even five to one failed us in the lot. What we could do was the practical question. We had also, I think, five of the party, and Bell was a huge, strong fellow, able for a couple of ordinary mortals, but what availed all that against desperadoes, each doubly armed with revolver and rifle. We calmed ourselves as best we could as we mutually approached. Our salute was cordially returned, and then we found that we owed an ample apology for having for once so grievously mistaken honest men. Another goldfields feature was of the most pleasing and inspiring character. In no goldfield we had then visited did we ever meet with so much as one drunken person. With most laudable prescience, our authorities had prohibited the ingress of and the dealing in any intoxicating drink on all proclaimed goldfields. The good order, in consequence, was quite marvellous, and we seemed as if in some earthly paradise, where mankind had, as with one consent, dropped the worst of human vices and passions. But this was only so far as drink and drunkenness were concerned, for rude circumstances made rude men, to see no more of the pervading convict element nor were the goldfields free from sly grog-stalling, as it is called. Still, the difficulties put in the way kept them thus sober. Of course, outside the goldfields' limits, there was drunken riot enough, intensified, no doubt, by the enforced sobriety within. Troops of diggers, or their employees, with their pockets full of gold, would start for town, or for the nearest public there, to run up a score, till the whole pile had vanished. We were told of one country hotel called the Porcupine, whose keeper was making forty thousand pounds a year of net profit. These riotous crowds at each public house indulged in such shocking excesses of language and conduct 
as to make mere drunkenness the very innocence of the case. But withal I confess to a greatly disappointed feeling when, having left the colony on a home visit early in 1853, and returned late in 1854, I found that the influence of the great spirit interest had succeeded in removing all restriction from the goldfields. By this time, however, the police and other authority were better organised, so that there was a very considerable mitigation of bad effects. End of section 14